This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. I hope that you will check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com and rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with your friends if you find it of interest. Stella Morabito is the author of the new book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. She has been a writer on numerous sites, including The Federalists, over the past several years, and she has experience from the world of the intelligence community. Stella is someone who's very aware of the different trends that happen behind the scenes. And as loneliness is one of these issues within the current American societal experience that are extremely concerning, both from a health perspective and a health of society and democracy perspective, I was happy to talk to her today. Stella Morabito, coming up next. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Stella Morabito, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having me on, Ben. Good to see you. So it's good to see you too. So uh, I was uh, reading with interest uh, your new book, and I wanted to ask you what you felt uh, in terms of your motivation for wanting to spend so much time researching and writing about the issue of loneliness. Well, it, I think part of it is that there are so many agendas today that are coming at us from so many different uh, places. And we've already seen headlines on an, before the COVID um, lockdowns. We saw lots of headlines about a loneliness epidemic in the country, as well as deaths of despair. And, you know, all of these things uh, happening in concert with some pretty strange agendas. And, um, and I wondered, you know, with all of these different agendas taking place in all these different institutions, whether it's education or, or medicine or, you know, all these places, uh, I was looking for a common denominator. And the common denominator is social isolation. And, uh, and, and all of these things operate to isolate us, all of these agendas. And uh, so uh, I was looking, I was looking for not just a common thread, but the means through which we've accepted so much uh, what seems insanity uh, on so many different fronts. And it all boils down to the primal fear we all have of ostracism. And that's all based on, uh, you know, a need to connect with other people. I think the first thing we have to do is understand that we're all social animals. Human beings cannot survive in isolation. And, and so this primal need to connect with a flip side being 
the terror of of ostracism or isolation uh, triggers the conformity impulse. And the conformity impulse, in my opinion, is what has led to all of these things happening at once. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the, the history that you're looking at here, uh, how has uh, periods of social isolation uh, and loneliness uh, led into uh, po- politics in ways that we see happen in other countries, particularly thinking about um, sort of the Mexican experience is something that I'm more familiar with in terms of of, uh, of the existence of kind of an atomized culture uh, there by a lot of measures they have, you know, far less of a uh, community or uh, institutional forms of uh, people being able to work together. And this tends to lend itself toward, you know, frankly, organized crime taking the place of a lot of these community organizations and the like that we view uh, here in America uh, as being uh, kind of the organizing factor uh, for mm-hmm. many people in parts of Mexico. What do you see in terms of that type of development historically, where you have an atomized people that becomes bound together by something that may be viewed as a negative? Well, as Hannah Arendt, uh, you know, who wrote that epic book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, mid-20th century, noted in her book, she didn't take the deep dive into it that I tried to take with this book, but she um, made it very clear that terror can rule over people really only when they're isolated. And so the first uh, order of business for any kind of tyranny is to bring that isolation about. And so it through you get exactly what you're talking about. You know, everybody goes kind of haywire when they're they don't have strong uh, connections, strong human connections, whether it be family and faith and uh, community. And and when you get community breakdown, uh, you see more and more of this because people become a lot more vulnerable to that kind of uh, social control or criminal activity. Uh, and all of that. And and I think what pushes it along is this, uh, you know, that connection, I guess, with whatever authority offers you a sense of survival uh, and connection. And it can come down to something pretty, pretty awful, as we've seen through history. I mean, starting with the French Revolution, not starting, but at least since then, uh, where they had these during the Jacobin reign of terror, uh, demonization campaigns. I mean, obviously that's nothing new, but, uh, and we saw it with the Bolshevik revolution, war on private life. The goal was always to atomize people because that's, that's how you control them. And you do that by triggering the conformity impulse. And that conformity impulse is, um, triggered by that fear of, uh, isolation. So people tend to kind of go along thinking, that somehow they'll they'll get some relief or at least just be left alone. But all that does is continue the cycle of isolation and makes us even lonelier, makes us even more needy and more dependent upon what ends up being the mass state or whatever kinds of, uh, you know, authoritarian, uh, you know, things happen with like the organized crime you're talking about. Mm-hmm. In terms of the uh, American experience, 
America has historically, while it's gone through obviously, you know, ebbs and, and flows over time, um, historically has had a, a pretty strong uh, representation of family units and of the importance of faith communities uh, to really undergird a lot of its uh, tenure. It's young nation, obviously, but the you know historical pattern there seems to be pretty clearly something that's been broken away from in the last uh, 30 years or so. You see the steady decline of of church attendance, particularly uh, a a decline in terms of uh, the uh, the age at which young people are getting married, uh, mm-hmm. uh, getting married later, having fewer kids, et cetera, et cetera. How much of these factors, in terms of driving loneliness, uh, are things that are organic, and how much are they driven by? Um, the degradation of trust in these various institutions that have been around for most of American life. Oh, well, absolutely. It, it, it's been a, a, a complete lack of trust or social distrust that's been building with the uh, kind of failure of our institutions to promote social connection. I mean, family breakdown leads to community breakdown. Uh, we see that in so many places, uh, it's uh, and you ask how much of it is organic. Um, well, you know what's organic is our need, and uh, what's less organic or more I don't know astroturfed, if you will, is taking that need and and it is a hardwired need, not just for connection with other people, but connection to the transcendent uh, and uh, in religion. And so what so often happens is the mass state or whatever you want to call it uh, um, takes the place of that, you know, they rush into the vacuum uh, that's created when we have so much breakdown. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's why you see the, you know, the dependence, uh, more dependence on the state, whether it's, you know, take care of my student loan debt or uh, you know, I don't need to get married to get to save the planet or, you know, all these different, uh, all these things happening at once that serve to nudge, I guess, you know, nudge, as you were saying, youth, maybe not, not to get married or, or to feel, you know, so much, when you have a media monopoly that pushes a lot of these agendas, uh, you know, people tend to go along. And, and that's what you end up seeing. Mm-hmm. And it's really dangerous for a freedom. How do you uh, measure the uh, the value of connectivity that people seek out in order to deal with this loneliness? Uh, by which I mean, clearly there are distinctions between a community that is formed around one piece of you know human interaction versus another. The mm-hmm. by the you know, at least in an ideal space, the bounds, that you, uh, the binding nature that you have within, let's say, a church community uh, mm-hmm. or a faith-based community are understood as being stronger than, let's say, uh, the the way that you're bound to fans of a common sports franchise or fans of, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh uh, and uh, and of course, political movements as well. Whether you identify as being 
part of BLM or the Women's March, mm -hmm. the Trump movement or the Tea Party, you know, those are all things that, you know, have different uh, sort of merits in terms of compensating for loneliness and allowing people to bind together. But they can't they can't all be assessed as being of the same value or achieving the same ends. How do you measure the differences between that type of, of uh, different approach to dealing with loneliness? Right. Well, you know, a lot of things that are generated by identity politics are going to be a kind of what I would call more of a manufactured sense of community uh, that create the vacuum or are the result of people feeling the, the need to connect with something. And this uh, tends to lead to a kind of a mob mindset or even actual mobs. And as I, you know, say in the book, mm -hmm. you know, mobs don't have to just be street mobs. They can be an HR department insisting that you go along with the, you know, the politically correct uh, line. I guess if I were going to boil it down, as you, you know, say, where, how do you measure? I guess maybe authenticity is your question, the authenticity of a community. I think it has to, it boils down to freedom of speech and conscience and association so that you aren't uh, separated from people. I mean, when, when, when you can't speak freely about what you believe, you end up polluting the, uh, you know, what, what we call public opinion. You end up uh, creating what's called a spiral of silence so that even if something is a majority viewpoint, it ends up being perceived, especially if there's a media monopoly doing this, um, as as a minority or even fringe uh, belief, even if it's a, you know, everybody privately believes the same thing. So if you don't have freedom of speech, and I say that freedom of speech is a use it or lose it proposition, and if, you, if, if there's no real exchange of ideas in this community, and you're going to, you know, have that fear of getting thrown out, ostracized, rejected, then in my view, it's not a real community. Now, there are some ideas that, mm -hmm. you, know, the, you know, even an authentic community are off bounds, but out of bounds, but you at least are able to work that out through real conversation. And if you can't have real conversation, you end up with, uh, you're on the road to atomization, and atomization leads to mm -hmm. social control. You know, one of the things that has been interesting to me in recent years is that uh, you have this effect that's been identified by major media entities and by academic groups and the like of uh, the siloization of our media conversations. Something that many people say um, is a bad thing because uh, people ought to be exposed to ideas that, mm -hmm. you know, test their boundaries or, or test uh, their own beliefs. The flip side of that, though, of course, is that those silos tend to be much stronger communities. Uh, you have, for instance, uh, I mean, just to pick the biggest silo uh, in the media landscape, you know, it's probably, you know, listeners of Joe Rogan. In the sense that these are very dedicated listeners who tune in for two to three hour sessions mm -hmm. on all manner of, of, of subjects. 
uh, and uh, and typically are listening to most of his episodes. You know, you have the same level of buy-in for, you know, it's not just him. It's the dedicated listeners to the Caller Daddy podcast, the dedicated listeners to Barstool uh, Sports or something like that, mm-hmm. where there's a certain culture that develops around uh, a media silo. But if you're outside that media silo, you may not be familiar with them at all. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I find very interesting, for instance, is that vocabulary of these different silos uh, can be very challenging. Sometimes uh, I'll drop listening to a a podcast for a certain amount of time, usually for about a year, and then I'll return to it. And in the time since, uh, you know, I've been away, there's new characters and new uh, focuses, new elements that they're, uh, you know, returning to and referencing. Uh, And it just is kind of, you know, it's the same experience as maybe going to one of these uh, cinematic universes uh, types things and or skipping a couple seasons of a TV show and then returning to it. You don't necessarily know what's going on. But yeah. the community around that media dialogue is obviously stronger than the one that's uh, that is found around, you know, let's say readers of the Washington Post, you know, who don't have that same level of of engagement. Yeah. Um so what's the value proposition there in terms of battling loneliness or atomization is siloing something that can actually produce some good outcomes socially by creating communities around, uh, you know, certain major media figures or, or, uh, or a group of media figures, um, in a way that helps create a community. Well, I think you probably nailed it when you said cultivating a, you know, a sense of engagement, and um, mm-hmm. I don't know what your exact word, but, you know, cultivating the ability to engage. I mean, people, I think, are starving for that. And yes, they may seem like a silo, but, uh, you know, you, you can't focus on everything, right? So you, you have separate communities. Um, but to me, the key is whether or not they cultivate engagement. And when you feel free to engage, that that's where, you know, you can really create a community and, and, and get that mm-hmm. sense of really openness. I mean, even if people disagree, uh, the ability to freely express uh, what you believe allows, allows people to move towards the truth and... Um, you know, whether or not you believe, you know, the truth is relative or whatever, it allows people to come to not necessarily an agreement, but it moves civilization forward. Uh, it, it it allows for a reestablishment of free, our fundamental freedoms of speech and association and conscience. How much is the effort that's currently invested by uh, the American left, but also, you know, backed to uh, to varying degrees by American corporations um, in the critical race theory space, uh, a, an attempt to kind of create a new sin uh, structure uh, within American society that's meant to almost function as its own set of religious values, uh, as opposed to necessarily being what they kind of presented as, which is 
Um, these are lessons about history that we believe uh, deserve to be told and have been, you know, quote unquote, ignored by, mm -hmm. you know, the uh, existing education process or something along those lines. Well, in a, in a true education setting, you would be able to have a real conversation about all of those things. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned the corporate world uh, having a requirement, say, that there is a politically correct uh, view uh, that people need to take. Uh, on, and you use critical mm -hmm. race theory as an example. But critical race theory is an excellent example because it uh, it indicates the lengths to which identity politics has gone. And uh, it really is all about identity politics, which is all about division. It's about putting people into different uh, categories of uh you know, oppressor, victim, uh, ally is this term used so that, you know, if you are an oppressor class, you can kind of go over to the victim class or at least the protector. The point is that it is a divisive kind of all, all identity politics, whether it has to do with sex or gender or uh, race or any other demographic is um, mm -hmm. it, it ends up leading us not to see human beings as unique individuals. And that's, you know, that's a, you know, it's a horrible loss uh, for, you know, for civilization, for freedom and, uh, you know, real community. Um, and do they know they're doing these, you know, hurting people by doing these things? I mean, it's clear to me it hurts people to be separated that way. And I don't know, I, you know, how much of it is just go with the flow. And, you know, these power elites have their own kind of ambitions, and uh, but they're all kind of seem to be tied together uh, in demanding uh, political correctness and these, you know, adherence to these uh, tenets of identity politics and so on. So you know, I don't know exactly where they're all Did you happen from. to see David Ceteris's, uh, uh piece, which I was – I think uh, gone a little viral uh, from CBS Sunday morning about why he didn't want to be called queer anymore. No, I didn't see that. You want to clue me in on that okay. one? Okay. So uh, just to, just to explain it, just to explain it, essentially he says, you know, uh, I, I'm an old enough uh, uh, you know, person that I've been homosexual and then I've been gay. And then I was part of LGBTQ and then I've become queer. And he said, and and now all of these things uh, ha are essentially meaningless and that he doesn't want to be redefined according to, uh, you know, the whims because he's not changing along the way. He is who he's been uh, this whole time, essentially, is his argument. And obviously he's a humorist. And so it's a sort of funny and arch way that he talks about it. He talks about people defining themselves um, as queer because of how tall they are, regardless <laughs> of their relationship status or the like. And, uh, and he, you know, talks about these things, I think, as someone who is sort of a tired liberal, um, you know, someone exhausted by what they see as kind of the younger sets urged for definition. Is this, uh, it seems to me, though, that what he's identifying there is something that social media uh, has uh, and technology uh, has only made more central to the American experience that constant need to define and signal 
um, who you are, your status within this landscape, the correct emojis after your name or the correct signifiers or pronouns yeah. in your um, biography. That's something that seems to me to be a relatively new American phenomenon that, that you know, technology didn't invent, but certainly seems to have expanded and accelerated. What do you think oh, about that? Absolutely. Now, um, so all of these, uh, you know, identity politics markers or, you know, the political correctness or mob agitation that, you know, enforces identity politics, that's always been there. I mean, you know, since, you know, at least the French Revolution, the Bolsheviks, and, you know, everybody uses them to, of course, the Third Reich and Mao's struggle sessions. They've all been used. They haven't really had those terms attached to them. But what um, this individual just wants to be known, I think, as David. I mean, it, a, a unique human being who has yeah. their own personal identity. And that's what allows us to have, uh, you know, a real civilization, a real uh, sense of community is, is that kind of engagement as individuals. And that allows us really to connect in an authentic way with others through family, faith, community, and, and have our own sense of identity. And uh, I think that a lot of, especially youth, are being robbed of that. And yes, social media, uh, the new technologies, you know, all of this stuff has, that's been around for a long, long time, has of course been magnified, at, you know, by uh, the new communications technologies and, and the global scope of it all. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, we're being atomized even more rapidly uh, than, you know, these other mm -hmm. utopian movements, if you want to call them that, in the past. And it, it's, uh, you know, we need to take a step back. I wrote the book because I felt that a lot of these impulses, you know, we understand them instinctively. We don't want to be ostracized. So we, you know, we we quiet ourselves down. We shut up about what we believe. We even lie about what we believe uh, in order to avoid that or maybe mm -hmm. get a few social rewards. But uh, that, uh, especially in this technological milieu, that makes it a lot more, I think, dangerous, uh, pushing us a lot faster down the road to um, isolation and uh, so I just want people to have mm -hmm. just a more conscious understanding. It's really important that we understand these dynamics, what I call the machinery of loneliness uh, that triggers our conformity impulse that pushes us even deeper into loneliness. So um, that's, um, you know, that, that's where I think we mm -hmm. are, that you're right about that, that, you know, the social media. Can I ask you what seems... What seems to me to be a central problem that you face in pushing back against that atomization and loneliness is that the existence of the current uh, technological capabilities that we have um, that feed into it mm -hmm. are themselves, in large part, um, much easier to use, much more responsive, uh, and much more reliable than uh, perhaps an older way of doing things. And I'll just give you one example, which is that when it comes to going into a shop uh, and making and browsing and making a purchase, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's something that people used to do. It's mm -hmm. how they would sometimes discover new things or new menu items or new books or new movies or something like that. Mm -hmm. They would 
They would effectively go into a place, they would look and they would ex be exposed to these uh, other things. But now when you go into a lot of these shops, stores, you know, et cetera, your local one is going to not be particularly reliable in terms of what they have on offer. Your local restaurant's going to be making as many takeout orders as they are cooking for the people who actually go there, um, if not, you know, uh, more so. Um, and it's just easier to sort of say, instead of having the local place that I go into where I see people and develop friendships with the staff behind the desk, you know, I can just, you know, make an order on my phone and have mm -hmm. a much quicker, you know, solution to either, you know, the food delivery or to, you know, I mean, a good, uh, just one simple example would be, you know, I have a friend who is a, uh, a carpenter. We're friendly. We've known each other for a long time. When I have something that I need, uh, you know, help with or a project um, at home, I, I just, you know, I text him and I ask him to, you know, come and help me with whatever the thing is. Um, he's quite reliable. And, and so I've been, you know, using his, his sort, uh, services for years. And I know him a little bit and we, you know, have, uh, a, you know, a little bit of a relationship. We've, you know, uh, gotten a beer together and we've had, you know, uh, the, the point is just there's a bit of familiarity. But for most people, that's not the case. You know, they don't have that kind of, of you know, relationship next, uh, necessarily with someone in the old way that you would have with a mechanic or a carpenter or somebody mm -hmm. like that, that you would know as being a member of your community, not just a faceless person that mm -hmm. you're scoring on an app. Um, and so instead they just use the app. And that to me is, is something that while it may have negative consequences in terms of creating loneliness, uh, it's hard to see people breaking away from that because what they really just need is that piece of furniture that they had put mm -hmm. together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, you know, the, the, what they used to call, you know, the miracles of modern medicine or the miracles of, uh, you know, modern technology. Um, it's a, uh, a novelty at this point still, I think, that you can just, by the click of a button, just get whatever, you know, whatever it is you need. And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the point that you brought up of having lost any other alternative that that harkens back to a sense of community, like, you know, being able to go to your local store and, you know, uh, you know, engage with people face to face uh, in, you know, in real time uh, that that's being lost. And it's not just that, but it's the skills to create those relationships mm -hmm. uh, that's also being lost. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you see this, uh, you know, uh, I guess it's, the, you know, especially the younger millennials, you know, not getting married and not, you know, and feeling kind of adrift. Uh, and, and that is what this, uh, you know, these technologies are doing. Uh, and uh, and, and it, it's creating more of a, a, you know, an opportunity for the mass state also to rush in or the corporate mass state, you know, the, uh, you know to, to become uh, our like daddy state, uh, you know, our, our one relationship, the mass mm -hmm. relationship with a state that Robert Nisbet talks about in his book, uh, The Quest for Community. So how do we push back against this, given that this atomization is being fueled by and accelerated by the various tools that are around us, that we've mm -hmm. just gone through this period of forced atomization with the pandemic, mm -hmm. 
um, that we have a culture in which we are willing to tolerate a scale of deaths from opioid abuse and the like that is uh, unprecedented and unlike anything we've seen before. Um, it, given and that for many people that politics or you know bread and circuses has basically replaced the type of of uh, strong um, you know binding nature that they used to find via you know the benefits of being part of a church or an actual community that has uh, deeper or or higher uh, mm -hmm. focuses depending on on your measure of it. Given that all of this is arrayed in front of us, how do you turn that around? Because it certainly seems to me like we're accelerating toward more loneliness, not pulling back on, on the brakes. Right. Well, I think there are three ways. Um, the first is, you know, to develop the awareness, a conscious awareness of this, what I call machinery of loneliness, the, the ways in which our conformity impulse can actually push us deeper into isolation uh, and, and build uh, an awareness of that. Those of us who actually do have strong connections and family and faith and community um, need to, you know, share that knowledge uh more with those who, um, you know, don't have, maybe don't have the skills or the, uh, you know, the connections. And, uh, and then secondly, I think we, I can't emphasize enough that free speech is a use it or lose it proposition. Um, if, if we keep self-censoring, uh, that drives us even deeper into isolation. And it's, it's really important to understand that. And for people who say that, oh, it's just me, one voice, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I, I just like to remind them that, uh, when you look at the culture of censorship that's being pushed so hard, why is it that even one voice is squashed? Well, that's because, or the attempt to, to squash that one voice, that's because the one voice has a, a ripple effect. When we have actual conversations with other people, it, 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 it ripples outward. This is something that Václav Havel talked about in his book, The Power, or his essay, The Power of the Powerless. And also the uh, uh, sociologist Jacques Yalel, who wrote the, the, the epic book on propaganda, stated that propaganda ends where simple dialogue begins. And this is what's so threatening to totalitarians. They can't stand even one voice because that has a ripple effect. Okay, so so that was the second thing. Uh, free speech, use it or lose it. You have to you have to develop a culture where people can engage uh, on the level that you were talking about. And uh, and then thirdly, we really have to guard and protect and cultivate the connections that we have in our family, faith communities, and you know, in community in general, because those are the connections that allow us to actually develop a sense of individual identity. Uh, it's in that private sphere of life uh, that's under attack, uh, that, that, that we develop all of the, you know, the ability to see one another as individuals. And, and then on top of that, that's where we get the courage to speak up. And so those, those three things, awareness, uh, free speech, and uh, really cultivate and guard private, your, you know, your, your strong and healthy private relationships. Stella, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this.
I wanted to just share a few thoughts about this uh, experience that's coming out of the last couple of weeks of reporting regarding educational progress in America. We had the report card come out of the education department, the NAEP, which looks at the test results of fourth and eighth graders uh, on math, reading, and other issues. And it uh, really was so much worse than what we could have ever hoped. In terms of the situation post-pandemic, it really does seem like these are students who are not just left behind uh, in a measure of a few school years, but really it could be much more dramatic than that. We're dealing with the wreckage of a system that was dealt with in really incredible ways, incredibly disappointing ways, ways that emphasize the political demands of teachers unions, democratic politicians and others over the interests of the children who were involved. And of course, this was also a situation at odds with the rest of the experience around the modern world. Uh, obviously, Europe had opened almost all of its schools by the end of 2020 and uh, for in-person learning. And when it came time for the UK, which was a little bit slower than the rest of Europe, to open its schools in the spring of 2021, one of my favorite stats is that when they opened primary schools in the UK, only one out of every five school districts in America was open for in-person learning. So if that doesn't tell you that we're way behind everybody else, I don't know what will. And there was no real reason for it, except for the fact that there was a political interest in doing so. Uh, as I write at The Spectator in a piece on this very issue, uh, I quote City Journal, uh, which noted, in early 2021, the CDC allowed the most influential teachers union, the American Federation of Teachers, to review and edit new reopening guidance meant to provide a safe path to getting kids back to schools. Union heads were given direct, unprecedented access to CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. The CDC inserted verbatim text from their emails into the guidance. As a result, the CDC's union-approved guidance, released in February 2021, slammed the brakes on full reopening by linking it so tightly to community spread that only 5% of the nation's schools met the criteria to open at the time. This, despite several studies, showing that spread in schools was far lower than in surrounding communities. One seminal analysis published by the CDC just a month earlier had found only seven instances of in-school transmission over 13 weeks, though cases in the counties studied were exceedingly high. The union-vetted guidance also strongly recommended six-foot distancing, an unscientific and arbitrary spacing requirement that kept millions of children home half of the week if they were allowed in buildings at all. In Portland, Oregon, the Teachers Association used this guidance to lock six feet of distancing into their contracts for the entire school year. The CDC eventually updated the guidance in March 2021 to recommend only three feet of distancing, but the Portland district was powerless to increase the density of students and buildings given the year-long contract specifying six feet. Portland's version of hybrid learning for high school students translated to five hours per week in the building. 
Look, we are just beginning to understand the level of damage that has been done to America's school children, both primary, obviously, secondary school as well. And what I think we need to keep in perspective on this, what we must ensure is the perspective on this, is that this was a choice. The media is going to spin this in all the ways that are according to the wishes of Rochelle Walensky and Randy Weingarten and Anthony Fauci, who has said repeatedly in media interviews that he had nothing to do with school closures because he's a liar. He is just a liar. He lies and he lies and he lies because he knows that Washington media and the media establishment will allow him to get away with those lies, never reminding people of the fact that he literally insisted against all kinds of bureaucratic protocols that specific legislation be passed in order to allow schools to reopen. Legislation, by the way, that created massive slush funds of funding for these educational institutions, which has according to a ProPublica research, uh, n largely not been spent on issues related to the pandemic. These are people who have doomed our children to being behind the eight ball for the rest of their lives. They deserve the ramifications that ought to be brought against them for that decision. That includes Fauci, Walensky, the teachers unions, Randy Weingarten, and all of the local politicians who went along with one of the worst things that America has ever done to its children. It is vicious. It is foul. It is disgusting. And anyone who believes the future of this country should be enraged that they got away with it. I'm Ben Dominich, and you've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast, brought to you by Fox News. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.